Such uh, really lovely theology, uh, great Bible truths in that song, uh, and lovely to sing. Uh, do take a seat again. Thank you for teaching it to us. Um, we're going to hear uh, a few passages from the Bible in a moment, but uh, just wanted to some words of introduction, because we come this morning to, to something of a, of a hot topic, because um, in this series on authentic humanity, uh, we are arriving at the subject of gender, and you can't fail to be aware that uh, our contemporary moment involves some pretty strong voices uh, on the subject of gender. Uh, one of those voices is the voice of feminism, which quite rightly continues to challenge sexism and misogyny in our society and all of the inequality and oppression uh, that arises from that. And then uh, there is also the voice of the trans movement, whose radical thinking uh, has come to challenge almost everything that until recently we were assuming uh, about gender. And as if that weren't complicated enough, uh, those two voices are increasingly in conflict with feminism more and more vocal uh, in its concerns about the way that the trans movement uh, is threatening women's rights. So you might well ask, what is an elderly male pastor doing, venturing into this kind of territory? Uh, and one answer would be to say, well, um, when, when you're not vicar anymore, you just do what you're told. Um, uh, uh, but another answer would be to say that um, we do this out of a conviction that in the pages of the Bible, we have a revealed word from God. He, he makes known to us the things that we need in order to live life in this world uh, in ways that are right and good. Uh, and yes, sometimes the things that he reveals will be uh, in tension uh, with the things that the world is saying to us. Uh, and at that stage, we need to think and listen carefully uh, and sensitively, but we still listen. Now, this morning, you may not be in that place. You may not be coming to the words of the Bible uh, with that kind of attitude. You may, you may not be convinced that there's a God, never mind uh, convinced that you want to be a follower of Jesus Christ. Um, but, but I hope that um, you, you would uh, find it of value to hear the things that Christianity, um, when it bases itself in the words of the Bible, uh, what it does and doesn't say uh, on this topic of gender. Uh, but I know we're in uh, tricky territory, so why, why don't we pray uh, before we listen to the Bible together. Uh, Father God, we are so grateful that you have spoken to us, that you, you reveal your will, you reveal yourself, uh, you enable us um, uh, by your Spirit giving us ears to hear. Uh, you enable us to, to, to know you and live in relationship with you. Uh, and you tell us uh, how, uh, how you've made us um, and how you want us uh, to bring you honour and glory. And, and these are the things that we want to do um, and we pray that you would help us, uh, give us 
Uh, give us attentive ears, uh, give us humble hearts, um, and give me um, both uh, sensitivity and um, uh, wise words uh, as we look at these Bible passages together. Amen. So I think Ruth's coming to read a couple of passages from Genesis uh, and then from Ephesians. Thanks, Ruth. So we have three passages this morning, the first of which is Genesis 1, verses 26 to 31 on page 3. Then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Then God said, I give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth and every tree that has fruit with seed in it. They will be yours for food. And to all the beasts of the earth and all the birds in the sky and all the creatures that move along the ground, everything that has the breath of life in it, I give every green plant for food. And it was so. God saw all that he had made, and it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. We're now going to look at Genesis 2, verses 18 to 25, which is further down on page 4. The Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the wild animals and all the birds in the sky. He brought them to the man to see what he would name them. And whatever the man called each living creature, that was his name. So the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds in the sky and all the wild animals. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and then closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. The man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. That is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. Adam and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. We're now going to look at Ephesians 5, verses 21 to 33, on page 1176. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. 
For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body, of which he is the saviour. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In this way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated their own body, but they feed and care for their body, just as Christ does the church, for we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. However, each one of you also must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. Thank you very much, Ruth, for, for reading for us. If you've seen the title for, uh, for today's talk, then you'll see that the, the title is Equal and Different. Um, and I'm going to work through it in this sort of way, three, um, three headings to, to, to sort of structure our time together, uh, one on equal and two on different. Um, and that, I think, reflects the fact that as we think about equality, uh, we're very much working with the grain of, of our culture today. Um, so uh, that, that, that doesn't sort of jar. When we get to, to, to issues of difference, I think we'll find we're slightly more against the grain of our culture, uh, which is why I'm, I'm giving that slightly more time uh, and I hope we can go slowly enough that, that I can try and uh, manage that material okay. Um, so first, equality in the image of God. Uh, chapter 1, verse 27, uh, so we're in Genesis, we're in the first of those readings, um, says to us, uh, God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created, and it's actually an it, it's a singular there. Um, in the image of God, he created mankind, we might say. Uh, male and female, he created them. And, and, and the sense is that um, in, in, in forming mankind to be in his image, that the, the male and femaleness was intrinsic to it. It's, it's the whole of humanity uh, who are in the image of God. Uh, but of course, male and female within that uh, are equal in the image of God. And, and what that means is that men and women are equal. Equal in dignity, equal in value, equal in worth. And it's crucial to be clear about that. Uh, we push on further and say that the Bible goes on to make clear that men and women are also equal in salvation. Uh, Galatians 3 puts it this way. In Christ Jesus you are all children of God through faith. There's neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. Paul's not saying here that gender distinctions are eradicated. He's making a different point. Uh, he's, he's saying that there is only one way to be saved. 
There isn't a male route to salvation and a female route to salvation. There isn't a different sort of end point, uh, men saved in this way, women saved in that way. No, you're all one in Christ Jesus. So that um, as a saved Christian believer, you have the same spirit indwelling you. You have the same promise of eternity. You have the same status uh, as a child of God. So the Bible is very clear about this essential equality uh, in worth and value, both man and woman made in the image of God. The tragedy, of course, uh, is that the church hasn't always acted in line with this truth. So that at times women have been treated as if they were inferior or in some sense second class. Um, in their book on this subject, uh, Graham Bynan and Jane Tuohy uh, uh, put it in this kind of way. They asked the question, if, if you're a man, and especially if you are a church leader of any kind, have you seriously contemplated what it might feel like for a woman to think that God prefers men? Or at least to suspect that he might? To wonder what it would be like if your life as a disciple of Jesus was counted as less simply because of your sex. Penetrating question, isn't it? Uh, and uh, writing personally, Graham Bynum goes on to say this, I admit that until recently I hadn't considered those questions. And it is very sobering to do so. I need to realize that it does feel like that to some women and that I could even say and do things that might make it feel like that. So in this territory, for, in all sorts of ways, uh, there is need for apology and for repentance and for change. And whatever else I'm going to go on and say um, about difference, uh, it doesn't and it mustn't undermine uh, this essential truth that God has made men and women as equal image bearers in his world. And, and worth noting as we, as we go past this to, to, to kind of to reflect on the way in which, um, historically speaking, Jesus is the person who has brought about the greatest transformation in our thinking and understanding about male and female equality. Um, Jesus' attitude um, was radical and in all sorts of ways sits behind the uh, much more enlightened attitudes that now exist in the West. You, you think J Jesus praised the woman who anointed his feet. He respected the woman that he met at the well. He commended Mary for sitting and listening to him. And he chose women as the first witnesses of his resurrection. And in all sorts of ways, if, if women in the UK today are treated better than women are in Iran, and they are, then the reason is Jesus and the revolutionary influence that he had in our understanding 
uh, of men and women. Now, there's still plenty of work to be done in living this truth out, but the Bible couldn't be clear on this first point, the absolute equality uh, that is given by God uh, to men and women. And yet, um, this essential equality uh, doesn't mean that there is, that there is some sense of, uh, of men and women being interchangeable um, or identical with one another, um, which brings us to, to our second heading um, as we begin to think about difference. First, um, that the Bible clearly teaches differences in creation. When you stop and look at it carefully, you can't help noticing that the account of the creation um, has difference everywhere, and specifically differences in relation to, the, to, to, to men and women. Um, just look at it with me. Uh, the creation of man and woman takes place at different times. Man is created first, and then later, woman. The way that men and women are created, that's also different, isn't it? Uh, the man is created from the dust, whereas the woman is created from the man. Moreover, they're given different names, they're given different tasks, and they hear different commands from God. When you stop and look at it, the differences are everywhere um, in the, the, this creation account. And difference, actually, is a key thing about Genesis 1. When, when you stop and think about it, differentiation and separation is woven into the way that God brought the earth into being. Um, it runs right through uh, this chapter. Light is distinguished from darkness. The waters above distinguished from the waters below. Land from sea, birds from fish, sun from moon. God separates things. He distinguishes things. And again and again, we're, we're faced with, with what we might call complementary pairs that, that, that clearly go together. Uh, and man and woman is just one more part of that in this account. There, there is, in other words, um, something essential about the, the difference, the distinction that God gives to man and woman. It's, it's integral to the way he's made us. There is, there is a givenness to our, our, our gender, our sexuality. Now, it's, it's right and proper to notice that um, because of the fall that we were thinking about last week, um, things are not as they should be anymore. That's what it means to, to, to live this side of the fall, that there are things that are disrupted, things that are now awry about our world. Um, this applies to gender, so that there are disorders of sexual differentiation, uh, these intersex conditions. It's not as it should be. Uh, there are also people who do experience a profound disjunction between their biological sex and their sense of rightness 
uh, with their biological sex. Uh, I've spent time with individuals uh, and with their families for whom this has been true. Uh, and I'm very much aware of the pain and the struggle and the, the heartache um, that uh, these things bring into people's lives. Uh, in no way do I want to underestimate uh, just how hard that is. Yet, in the face of the compassion that we, that we should, we must feel uh, for people who struggle in this way, uh, that isn't a reason to set aside the essential givenness uh, of our biological sex. And of course, you and I both know that that is what is happening. Over the last 10 years, uh, we've moved at in incredible speed uh, from, from a place where sex and gender uh, were assumed to a place where sex and gender are increasingly, we're told, something that we need to choose. You will appreciate that we don't, uh, in any sense, have time this morning to, to properly explore the impact of this. We, we had a seminar, I think, um, oh, was it a couple of years ago, maybe, or 18 months ago, when we, we set aside to, to look at the trans um, issue in more detail. Um, um, so it, it's difficult to, to, to do justice to all the things that need to be said in this territory in a short space of time. Um, but. I do want to note the dramatic increase uh, in the number of young people who are identifying themselves as trans uh, over recent years. Helen Joyce um, has written uh, one of the first um, kind of mainstream critiques of the trans movement. She's not, she's not writing as a Christian. Um, she's an academic who has um, become, I think she's editor of The Economist magazine. Um, and she wrote this book on trans a few years ago and then updated it um, just last year. Um, and she, um, she has this to say. In the past few years, a new group of trans-identifying minors has emerged, teenage girls. Until very recently, this demographic was almost never seen in uh, gender clinics. Now it predominates worldwide. Uh, she goes on. It is an indictment of both modern feminism and gender identity ideology that the first generation of girls to be taught that womanhood can be identified out of are doing so in large numbers. You catch that? It's very striking what she's saying there. It's a real indictment of what our society has created and, and the way that our society is actually communicating the value of women, that now that there is a way of identifying out of being a woman, that's what increasing numbers of teenage girls are choosing to do. J.K. Rowling has become one, has become perhaps the most prominent of um, the many people who are convinced that the core for gender self-identification uh, represents a threat to women. Uh, whether it's a threat to, to safe spaces for women or whether it's unfairness uh, in women's sport, 
the voices that are questioning uh, the trans movement are getting louder and louder. And, and Christians and Christian thinking ought to be a part of that uh, because we have clear things set out in Christian theology uh, about the way in which God has made us, uh, the significance and importance of gender, of maleness and femaleness uh, to God's creative plan, and the conviction that it's good. So, first, uh, difference, uh, a difference in creation. And then we come to a second difference, uh, which is a difference in role. Um, there have been various points over the last uh, couple of weeks where I have, I have really begun to wonder what on earth um, is possessing me to imagine that we can cover all of these things um, in, uh, in one talk. Um, so I, so let, actually, let me say this. I, I am conscious that, I, that I'm, I am inevitably skimming over a number of things sort of inadequately quickly. Um, and I hope what they will do is prompt us um, to talk together, uh, to recognise that we'll be at different... We'll, we'll have thought this through a different, a diff, to, to different degrees. Uh, we'll certainly have different perspectives. Um, uh, so do keep talking. Um, I'm doing things so briefly uh, that, it, that at best it'll be some starters for your further reading and thinking together. Uh, but second heading then. Um, the, the differences uh, it, that uh, the Bible seems to be communicating to us about our role. Um, tr true to say, isn't it, that there, there's, there's no one way to express our gender. Um, gender expression, if you, if, you, if you think of it like that, that has varied hugely. It's varied over, over history, uh, done in different points of history in very different ways. It's done differently from culture to culture. Um, and we need to be really cautious before identifying this or that particular trait or these or, or those particular roles as somehow fundamental to our maleness or our femaleness. Uh, we're, we're so often blind to our own cultural assumptions that it's very easy to fall into sort of very clumsy gender stereotyping. Um, convinced that this is, this is the real thing, and actually it's just the way that our culture um, tends to, to view things. And, and as a little aside, it's a great irony um, um, in relation to the trans movement um, that, that opposition to, to biological sex seems to be going hand in hand with an astonishingly regressive view of gender stereotypes. Um, explain what I mean. It, it, again, Helen Joyce in her book uh, describes, um, describes how this, this happens uh, with illustration of a, of a website which invites teens to explore their, gen their gender identity. Uh, it recommends um, placing yourself on several gender scales. Listed under looks masculine are rational, tough, takes charge, independent, headstrong, active, and outgoing. Under looks feminine are emotional, soft, takes part, sharer, sensitive, passive, and shy. Helen Joyce says, if this website endorsed smashing those stereotypes to your heart's content, I would applaud. Instead, 
Uh, it invites the teams visiting that website to work out where you are on each scale and from that to decide whether you're a boy or a girl or something in between. It's remarkable when you stop and think about it how much the trans movement is actually reinforcing astonishingly sort of simplistic views uh, of what it is to be a man and to be a woman. Now, we certainly want to avoid uh, any of that kind of very clumsy stereotyping. Uh, but, but I do want to, to, to try and ask, is there, is there anything in the Bible uh, to tell us what it looks like to be a man or to be a woman? I think the answer is actually that there is surprisingly little. Uh, I don't think there are many places and many passages um, that have masses to say about this. Um, I think the little there is uh, describes roles and relationships more than it does attributes and qualities, if I can put it like that. But um, the little that's there, I, th I think, leads us cautiously um, to want to suggest that, that the role that is given to man seems to have some sort of a leadership element to it and seems to have some sort of protective and guardian components. While, while the role that seems to be uh, given to woman is described in terms of, uh, of helping uh, and it has life-giving and collaborative elements. The, the, the point is not that women won't ever be in positions of leadership any more than men won't ever be called upon to help another person. Clearly not. But that something of these two sort of um, elements uh, of both characteristic and role uh, are woven into the way that God has made us to be. Um, it, why, why am I suggesting that this is the case? Well, first, because I think we see something of this in the creation account. So in chapter 2, verse 15, um, we find that the task that is given to Adam is to work the garden and take care of it. And at this stage, that instruction is given to Adam alone, to work the garden and take care of it. And the, the phrase take care actually has the sense of guard and protect um, and, and kind of resist uh, threat. So when at the start of chapter 3 we find that a snake has entered the garden and that Adam is noticeable by his absence, you can't help thinking that that's significant. The, the woman, meanwhile, um, is identified in chapter 2, verse 18, as a helper. A and that's a strong word. God is described as a helper to his people Israel. There's nothing, nothing weak or, or sort of second-rate about it. Uh, then over the page, uh, chapter 3, verse 20, the woman gets given her name, Eve, because we are told she will become the mother of all the living. Uh, and again, cautiously, I want to suggest to you that, that these themes and threads continue to emerge 
as we press on through Scripture. So push on into the, further into the Old Testament, um, and we encounter the, uh, the priestly Levites. Uh, they are male. And their role includes protecting and guarding the tabernacle and later the temple. Same kind of function. Uh, fast forward to the New Testament, and we encounter church elders, also appointed to be male, uh, with a role that Paul describes in Acts chapter 20, very much in terms of, of guarding, protecting. Keep watch, Paul says to the Ephesian elders, over yourselves and all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Be shepherds. And, and the, the shepherd was very much a protector. He had a, had a rod and a staff to fight off wolves. Be shepherds of the church of God, which he bought with his own blood. I know that after I leave, savage wolves will come in among you and will not spare the flock. Even from your own number, men will arise and distort the truth in order to draw away disciples after them. So be on your guard. This, this, this guardian function, this protecting function, Overseers, bishops in the church, are called to drive out error. It's a pretty significant thing to be alert to at the moment in the Church of England. So what we mustn't do as we see this thread uh, of a guarding, protecting function uh, that seems to be granted uh, and expected of the man is we mustn't overlook the helping function that the woman provides alongside him. Genesis tells us, doesn't it, that the man is inadequate. You catch that? It's the reason that I wanted um, asked Ruth to read all the way on to, to the end of verse 31, um, because that's the last of the goods. You've got good, good, good each day, and then at the end of the seventh day, very good. And then we're supposed to be brought up short uh, when we arrive um, in chapter 2 and verse 18. And we have a not good. It's supposed to be a surprise. This, 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 is, this is very strange. And the not good is that the man is on his own. And he's not enough. He's inadequate. He is insufficient to complete the task that God has given him. He has to have a helper given to him. So that the two of them, side by side, as a complementary pair, are able to achieve the things that God has asked of them. Um, and it's precisely this complementary pattern uh, that is emphasized in Ephesians 5. Uh, in this section thinking about marriage, we're told that the husband is to serve his wife by giving himself sacrificially in love, patterned on Jesus Christ. What, what he's not doing there is to be domineering or oppressive. And it's a travesty uh, when this teaching is, has been used by men uh, to justify uh, oppressive uh, and domineering behaviour, and when it's become a, a, a cloak for domestic abuse. The wife, meanwhile, 
serves her husband by entrusting herself to his faithful lead. There's nothing being said here about a lack of initiative uh, or a sense of passivity. Now, the two roles enhance and complement one another. They, they sort of dovetail together. Uh, that's the picture that's being given to us here. Because difference is central to the way that God has made us. Now, I've whizzed through lots of things, as I've said. Um, three, three brief concluding comments, particularly because I know how little I've said on Ephesians 5. Um, three, three quick closing comments. First, whatever is, is said about male and female roles in marriage, or indeed come to that in church, um, be, a, be a huge mistake to imagine that the things that are said about the, difference, the different roles that men and women seem to be being given is in some way the sum total of the things that we need to hear about the way that we do relationships. Some, in, in some circles, and, and sometimes, you get the impression that, that this teaching on headship and submission, as it's sometimes referred to, um, is, is kind of everything there is about the way that marriage should be done. But it's not. All of the instructions of the Bible gives to us as disciples of Christ, all of the instructions about love and gentleness and compassion and kindness and humility, they haven't gone away. They're still there. All of us are expected to, to obey those. And actually, those commandments are much more prominent stated much more often than the relatively few references uh, to issues about distinction in role. So, so we mustn't set those to one side. They should be up front and centre about the way that we conduct ourselves um, in marriage, in church, in our relationships, in all of our relationships with one another. Absolutely vital. Uh, second, um, it won't surprise you to know, we've, we've done enough. We, we haven't looked at all of the passages um, that describe the, the relationships within church uh, in terms of um, uh, roles within church leadership um, and some of the other passages that deal with male-female relationships in marriage. What's interesting is that in, in, in possibly every single one, certainly in almost all of them, um, there is a reference back to Genesis. It's really interesting. Um, every time this topic comes up in the New Testament, the, the, the reflection back is to the Genesis account. Almost as if emphasising that this is, uh, this is something about the way that we're made. This is something about the way that God has created us to be. Uh, and then finally, um, would, you, would you see how these things are not kind of small print because they are really tightly connected both with who God is and how we get saved. See, but by saying that, that God has made man and woman to be equal but different, you, you immediately catch the connection with God the Trinity, don't you? Uh, 1 Corinthians 11 does that that God also, in three persons, one God, is there is an absolute equality between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, 
but there is a difference in role. Uh, and this seems to be capturing that same idea. Um, and, then, and then secondly, notice that it also has something to say to us about the way that we get saved. See, when we think of, of how God saves us, he doesn't save us by, by maintaining a huge distance between us and him. As if there is such extraordinary difference. Of course, there is a difference between God and us. But we, we don't end up with a God who is, who is far away from us. No, the wonder of Christian salvation is that we become united to him. And the picture in Ephesians 5 is saying, you know, we are united to Christ like a body is united to a head. It's an extraordinary unity. So even though we're different, we are able to be united with him. And the picture of marriage provides us with a, with a picture of that. God comes close to us, even though he's different to us. Catch that? But on the other hand, there is still a difference. We haven't got some sort of a, a kind of slightly more pagan idea of God just sort of merging himself with us, because God's in everything really. Now, there, isn't a, there isn't a sort of a blurring of the distinction now, the wonder of our salvation in Christ is that we are fully united to God even though we're different and even though that difference is maintained. So, you see, these things that we're thinking about this morning, they're not small print. They're woven into who God is and how he saves us. Um, and they're precious uh, for that reason. We've covered lots. Um, do keep thinking, talking together. Um, to, to help you with that, um, I, in, in my reading over uh, recent weeks, I came across um, this article by Claire Smith. She's an Australian theologian. Um, and it's, it's, a, it's an enormously helpful sort of precy uh, of the Bible's teaching in this area. Um, six pages um, and if you feel as I've skimmed, as indeed I have, over lots too quickly, um, then that would be something that you could go to uh, to try and do a little bit more thinking. Uh, they're on the table at the back if you want to pick one up. Let me pray for us. Uh, we thank you, Lord God, that in, in the things that you've revealed to us about yourself, uh, about the way that you would have us be uh, as men and women, uh, and indeed the way that you'd have us relate uh, to one another, uh, that what you have revealed is good, uh, not something that we need uh, to uh, feel um, in any sense uh, bashful about. Uh, what we do need to acknowledge is that so often we have failed uh, to live up to all that you have revealed to us. Uh, and we pray that you would, you'd help us, to, each one of us, uh, us as a church, uh, to keep on uh, reforming uh, our way of being uh, so that we are more in line with all that you reveal to us uh, in this area and in others. Uh, please help us. Uh, we need your mercy. We need your grace. Um, and uh, we're grateful uh, for the salvation that we have in Jesus, uh, that it is possible to be united to him uh, our loving head uh, and to know all the riches uh, of the blessing uh, of unity uh, together with one another uh, and unity 
in the Lord Jesus himself. Uh, we praise you in his name. Amen. Uh, unity is the, the theme of our, of our final song. Um, how good it is uh, to know this unity that God brings about for us. So uh, as the music begins in a moment, we will stand, sing a final song together.